This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, whose responsibility is it to improve health literacy? The timing of your fourth COVID shot. Spinal cord stimulation has become popular for pain control. Later on, a trial of spinal stimulation in people with low back pain going down their legs. And there's been a lot of publicity over the last few weeks about changing the packet size of paracetamol tablets in an attempt to reduce self-harm due to overdosing. Paracetamol overdoses are highly dangerous. But even so, there's been pushback, claiming that it's the nanny state in action and wants to stop people shopping around if they're determined to harm themselves and people with chronic pain complaining that they're going to be denied paracetamol. What's not had a lot of coverage are the data which sit behind this policy. And I suspect when you hear what's been happening, you might change your mind. I heard it last week at the National Summit on Self-Harm, organised by the Black Dog Institute. And the speaker was Professor Nick Buckley of the University of Sydney, who's looked in particular at the experience of the New South Wales Poison Centre. Welcome to the Health Report, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Let's just walk, walk through what you've found. So we've... For, for many years, um, like decades, I've been working uh, treating the medical complications of poisoning. The age and gender distribution of people who poison themselves was very static. It was the same sort of pattern of people. Um, what was that pattern? It, it was a little uh, peak in 15-, 16-year-old girls, um, more than boys, and um, and 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 then... Uh, 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 it was reasonably common in older people as well, but that that was the peak age group. And there was and a seasonal effect, wasn't there? There was it was worse it, in winter. Uh, was it worse? Were they worse in summer than winter? There, there's a suicide um, risk, which um, is late spring, um, which may be to do with the seasons, and but possibly it's just to do with people drinking more you know, when they come out of winter. Um, so there's possible lots of reasons for that. But anyway, what happened in about 2011 was we started to see this big increase and we just noticed it spontaneously. People were just getting multiple calls about um, 12-year-olds with poisoning. And so we saw a doubling over the decade up to about 2017 in the number of young people poisoning themselves. Then it flattened off for a few years and then it's gone up again about by about the same amount in... Um, in the last couple of years. So overall, we've seen a tripling of the rates of um, d- intentional self-poisoning in uh, young people. But it's not just young people, it's young girls. It's particularly young girls. There's been a rise in boys, but boys were never that common. And so, yeah, you've got this huge increase in uh girls. And what you described last week when I was listening to you talking was this birth cohort effect, which was, you know, started with kids born 1997 and then moving forward. Yep. So lots of things have happened in society since then, obviously. Um, but yeah, this big increase in people born after that year, and it's been at every age from that year on. So that group poisoned themselves more often when they were 10 and when they were 11 and when they were 12 and so on. And they're still poisoning themselves at higher rates than the, the, the group who preceded them. And it's getting younger. I mean, it started off the, the highest group was 15 and 16-year-olds and now it's younger than that. 
Now, now our peak age group is 14. Um, it's not at all uncommon to see 12-year-olds. So it's, it's um, as anyone who has adolescent you know, children would know, this is a difficult time being a parent and it's a difficult time being a, a person. Now, so other, it's, now, other mm. self-harm data in this age group suggests it's re- related to the school year. It's more common in the school year than it is in the holidays. Um, yeah. were, were there any patterns like that in the data? Yes, so we've, we've seen that and uh, also New South Wales Health has seen that in a separate analysis of admission rates. But in our poisons calls, we see that um, there's the, the rates of poisoning on w- when we think kids are in school based on the school terms and so on are around um, 50% higher for for those school times. And there's also a weekly peak. And so, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday are the best kind of days and and then things are worse on Sundays, Mondays and so on. So what, now, just, this is New South Wales data largely. How applicable is this data, are these data to other states and territories? So our, our regional uh, analysis, uh, it, we saw the same pattern in Victoria. So we, we did a combined study with uh, the Victorian Poison Centre and so we very much saw that. And it applies to um, ACT in Tasmania, which the New South Wales Poison Centre takes. So the New South Wales Poison Centre takes half of all Australia's poisonings. So it's not restricted to New South Wales data. So um, what's going on here? There a fairly sudden effect in kids born around about 1997 but seems to have come on in 2011. Something's happened. I mean, it's not as if um, suddenly parents were giving birth to children who were becoming, going to become different adolescents. There's something environmental that's happened here. The obvious one to think about is that you, you imagine is social media. Um, yes. But uh, one thing I didn't say was we actually have seen, um, I think we were the first to show this, but it's been followed up in Canada, the USA, uh, several European countries are all seeing this tripling in uh, self-harm. So I think to me that does point to something that's not Australian, that is uh, is across you know, high-income countries at the very least, and that is likely to relate to technology. But what's what's in that technology that's causing this is not clear. Is it bullying? Is it content that is bad? Is it worrying about the future? Is it contagion where people read about things other people are doing? So there's a whole, is it them feeling terribly insecure because they see all these influencers their age getting hundreds of thousands of dollars and free products? It's hard to know. And hard to control. So Mm. So you, you've taken this step or through the regulator of reducing the pack sizes, the maximum amount of paracetamol that you can buy at, at one time. Um, is there evidence that that will have an effect? Because what, what's the pattern here? So obviously fixing paracetamol is not the solution to adolescent self-poisoning. It's not a complete solution. What we're trying to do is reduce the harm from that and then hopefully other things will be put in place that will uh, address what's going on with the adolescents in terms of their mental well-being and so on. So, the but paracetamol accounts for 50% of overdoses in this age group. It accounts for 
more than that in terms of serious overdoses. And what happens is kids are just going to their cupboard in their house is the predominant pattern and grabbing what's there. So they're, so, so they're not shopping series. around to calls and woolies and gathering themselves a massive amount of paracetamol. They may be it, on the internet the whole time, but they're not doing research about this on the internet. They're acting impulsively and grabbing what's in their cupboard. And um, our, the, we, we came up with four suggestions and they were really about trying to, three of them were really about trying to reduce the amount of paracetamol that's just sitting around in people's cupboards because it's cheap and you can purchase it in very large amounts. So what do you say to the chronic pain lobby that's saying, well, we're being denied our painkillers? I'd say perhaps they should read what the suggestions are because I don't think anyone will be denied a painkiller because of this particular intervention. So I, I, I think they have lots of reasons that they want to raise the profile of chronic pain in the community, but when you look at the interventions proposed, they're, they're going to have minimal impact on anyone. Uh, people who require regular paracetamol in the modified release preparation will have to get a script every six months. If they're not seeing a doctor every six months, perhaps they should be. And otherwise there'll be no, not, you know, paracetamol's not being banned. There's a lot of hysteria like it's actually going to be removed. This is much more like people are being told to put on seatbelts or do some other simple thing, they're not being told they can't use the car. Nick, thanks for joining us. We'll watch how this progresses with interest. Thank you. Nick Buckley is Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at the University of Sydney, and this is The Health Report. When you think about the factors that contribute to someone's health, you might think about things like getting enough exercise or the availability of healthy fruits and vegetables. But a key determinant is health literacy, somebody's ability to know how to prevent disease and navigate health systems. And even in countries with good health systems, many people aren't able to make healthy choices, as we've seen these past few weeks on Magda's Big Health Check on ABC TV. The idea that the responsibility for good health literacy sits with society at large and not just individuals is central to a new World Health Organisation report. Richard Osborne from Swinburne University was an author on the report as well as an editorial in The Lancet. He joins us now. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for having me on the show. Let's start by just defining what we mean when we're talking about health literacy. Well, health literacy is a way to understand people's health and their health information needs and really why some people struggle to look after themselves and why it's hard for them to adhere to medications and why lifestyle changes are complex for them and why many of our interventions are so ineffective for so many people. So we see this and this WHO report brings to light why a lot of interventions are so ineffective and what to do about it. So, so it's really a very important innovation. So these are interventions like saying maybe stop smoking or maybe drink less, those sorts of things. And you, you're putting these messages out there, but they're not always taken up by people. Yeah, it recognises that people are often in the community doing what they're doing. And we think they should be categorising their lifestyles in different kinds of risk factors about smoking, diet, kinds of fats, amount of particular kinds of exercise, all these categories. But people are basically doing what they're doing in the community often in goodwill, that um, 
in some communities, um, being big is really important. You're being loved. So there's a whole lot of risk factors which, as far as people are concerned, they're doing the right thing. Even their, their father may have smoked or 90, didn't get cancer. So we're telling them it gives you cancer, but they've got no evidence in the immediate environment. So it points out how challenging it is for our healthcare professionals to communicate what's going on, but also all these mixed messages and mixed um, kinds of experiences that people have in the community. Right. So there's messages that you're getting through official health channels and there's messages that you're getting culturally and societally and those are received differently. So what do we know about how someone's health literacy impacts on their pathway to health and disease over their lifetime? Yeah, well, it's tremendously important because if you don't have a good idea of what is the right and wrong information, it'll be easier to make the wrong choice. So you really have to be have some skills to make those good decisions and to support your family members. Now, this is another major thing that WHO is putting out now, that health literacy is more than just the individual's responsibility. Sure, they need to have understanding and skills, but really it's the people around them who will determine so many things. In the end, most people are making decisions with their family or their peers or others, so that's critically important. But the big onus really is on the healthcare system to make things easier. So the more we blame individuals for not doing the right thing, you could say, the more we're just going to increase inequalities and make it harder for people. We've got to get busy with increasing the capacity of the community but also making it easy within the healthcare system to find information and get it to use it. What do we know works best when it comes to increasing people's levels of health literacy then? Because it sounds like a pretty big job you're setting the health system here. Well, it is, but it's not that hard when you go into communities and you ask really general and specific questions about people's experience. There's so many people already doing it really, really well as individuals or practitioners who are just amazing at, at communicating to people and for them to get it to make that lifestyle change. So in effect, there's already the wisdom out there in the community. And this WHO report really advocates to go to those local contexts and use the local wisdom to derive the new locally derived innovations. A big problem is that we've got so many top-down policies and interventions which are really disconnected from people's daily lives. So we're doing it all wrong, you could say. We need to be be doing a huge range of bottom-up co-design with the community to find out what really is doable and implementable. So this idea of a co-designed communication tool is part of the report. Are there any other key recommendations that you'd like to draw out? Well, there certainly is uh, ways in which we, uh, the health services, inadvertently or almost deliberately exclude people from actually getting the full range of services. So there's really clear guidance around that. Well, um, making it a little bit harder for people to turn up, blaming people for not getting the full experiences from a service or um, people can't really engage in full because not reading them, really meeting their needs. So self-service practitioners Uh, many practitioners need to have a much better range of supports to really find out what's going on for individuals. So that will be a very useful part of it. The report also really seeks to um, don't blame the individual. That's a really important attitude of the health services. So you're saying at the start that um, even bright people have trouble in the healthcare system. That's for sure. So if we take a bottom-up approach, we'll have a much better chance at overcoming a lot of these issues. 
When patients have better health literacy, how does that affect doctors' behaviour towards them? Well, um, there has been several studies showing that um, doctors do have perhaps a more negative attitude towards uh, patients who appear to be from lower systemic status. Uh, so that makes it harder for them when there's those unconscious biases for people. But when people have a range of health literacy challenges um, or um, it's hard for them to understand or they're not um, have a, they're strong in the local language, it makes it much harder for the practitioner. So indeed, the big solution here for improving health equity is providing a lot more support for our practitioners and the services to make the system responsive to people's um, abilities. So that's going to be a really important way forward recommended in this report. This is a global report. Uh, very briefly, how does Australia stack up? Um, Australia stacks up um, very well because um, we are predominantly an English-speaking society, but then there's a huge number of people who are really struggling because of um, their language abilities. So Australia is doing well uh, overall, but one of the problems is every context is different. We can't really compare one country with another because of different systems and services. But Australia is an absolute leader in health literacy research for some of the best researchers in the world. And certainly a lot of the wisdom in this report, even though it came from 40 or 50 countries and a huge amount of work over over five years, Australia had a very big input. In fact, there's, there's three demonstration projects from Australia out of the 16 really influenced the understanding of, this, um, of the development of this mm. report. Well, that's great that we're taking a leadership stance, hopefully that continues. Richard, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Professor Richard Osborne is the Director for the Centre of Global Health and Equity at Swinburne University. Over 3 million Australians suffer from chronic pain, and often the issue is low back pain, which can radiate down the leg. It's disabling, and the treatment is controversial. Opioids in general don't work, and surgery can make it worse or not help at all. One solution for back pain has been spinal stimulation or spinal cord stimulation. Battery-operated device is implanted with wires going to the parts of the spinal cord which carry pain messaging. The stimulator sends bursts of electricity to those areas. Older stimulators aimed to replace the pain with pins and needles, which many people found hard to tolerate. More recent stimulators, though, work just under that threshold, that threshold where pins and needles or paresthesia, as they're called, appear, making the technique much more tolerable. The other benefit of silent spinal stimulation, in other words, spinal stimulation that doesn't produce spins and needles, is that it's easier to do a placebo-controlled trial where you don't know if the machine is on or off. The results of such a randomised trial in people with ongoing low back pain radiating down their legs despite surgery has just been published. And one of the senior researchers was a neurosurgeon, Professor Sasha Galati at the Norwegian University of Technology in Trondheim. Welcome to the Health Report, Sasha. Thanks for inviting me and having me on your show, Dr. Swan. How, please call me Norman. How, do you do, how did you do the trial? So uh, this was a randomised clinical trial. And uh, <clears throat> we put uh, uh, stimulators in all the patients. So we had 50 patients with pain, just as you described, and everybody got it. So what we then did was to randomize the patients to either having the stimulator on or having it switched off. So the stimulator was either on or not turned on. 
So in a sense, they and, were their own controls. You could tell you could, some... Yes. Yes, that is true. And then each patient was randomized uh, to either having the stimulator on or off for a total of four times. And patients were not informed whether the stimulator was on or off. So only the research nurse knew. So this was a quadruple-blinded study. The patients didn't know, but neither, neither did the surgeon, the statistician, or the investigator, which, which in this case was me. So what were the results? And, and, we, and you were looking, the outcome was relief of pain. That's what you were yes, looking so, for. Yeah, we, we were looking for uh, uh, several things. We were looking at uh, disability levels and leg pain, back pain, uh, quality of life, but also physical activity levels. And the results? So uh, what, what, uh, what we found was that patients improved a lot during stimulation, both in terms of functional disability, leg pain, back pain, quality of life, and physical activity. But the big surprise was that they did just as well on placebo. So stimulation was no better than placebo. So this is just a stone-cold negative study. Absolutely no difference between active treatment and placebo. But both and some patients, Yeah, but some patients got worse during stimulation, but the same ones also got worse during uh, placebo. So... So they got worse, um, but when, they were, when it was switched off, they were also, it was also worse, is what you were seeing in the same person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, each individual, as you mentioned, were also their own controls. So uh, the pattern was very consistent. So. Now, these are not cheap devices. I mean, in Norway, how much does it cost to implant one of these and maintain it? Because it costs several thousand dollars a year to maintain as well. Yeah, this is a, a very expensive uh, uh, device. I think in Norway it would be around uh, thirty to forty thousand U.S. dollar for for this treatment. And uh, worldwide, it's it's a huge business. It's it's rapidly growing, and the annual global market size is close to three billion U.S. dollars. Uh, I don't know how much that is in 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 your currency, but I take it it's a lot. It's, it is a lot. Now, there are lots of vested interests here. When you go on the web, you'll find in Australia lots of pain cl clinics offering uh, sacral stimulators or spinal stimulators, claiming great benefit. If you read the websites of the manufacturers, it looks fantastic. That they're, all, they're all doing a lot of good. Um, how convinced are you that this one study is representative of the field? In other words, they just you know the, the process of putting an expensive... Um, stimulator into somebody is an enormous placebo which works in its own right. I mean, that's the implication of what you're saying. But how generalizable do you think it is? So uh, I think it's uh, methodologically the most sound study uh, there is. Um, so the use of this treatment has increased, but until now there is very little solid evidence supporting its efficacy. And the majority of studies reporting an effect are sponsored by the industry. And most key opinion leaders advocating its use, they receive compensation from, from the industry as well. So our research is industry independent. We didn't accept as much as a sandwich. And I don't believe that there is such a thing as a, as a free lunch. 
So, and, and we've aimed for full transparency. So, um, uh, uh, we've been very clear about our inclusion and exclusion criteria, and also how we managed uh, the trial. So I can, I can feel the deluge of emails coming from vested interests in Australia, picking apart your study, but you know, this was wrong yeah. and that was wrong. What do you believe are the weaknesses and strengths? Well, you've already described the strengths of the study. What do you believe are the weaknesses of the study? Yeah, so we have for the most part received a lot of praise and positive uh, attention. But, but as you say, there, there are a few critical voices, especially uh, the doctors that make a living out of spinal cord stimulation and, and have very strong ties with the industry. So I think what we have to keep in mind is that we investigated one type of stimulator for one kind of pain. So we need to stay humble and we need more uh, placebo-controlled trials. So, and then, um, of course, uh, when you have a blinded study, a bl blinded trial, uh, you are prohibited from fine-tuning the stimulation parameters in, in a completely open dialogue with, with patients. Uh, but we did a very thorough review of the spinal cord stimulation system prior to each new randomization. And everything was performed according to the manufacturer's uh, uh, recommendation. So where does this leave people with chronic radiculopathy, which is the technical term for this pain down the leg from low back pain? Yeah, so, so it remains notoriously difficult to treat. And did I wish for these results? No way. So, so of course, we wanted the treatment to help. But unfortunately, it, it didn't. Well, we'll just have to go back to the drawing board. Thank, yeah. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for so much for having me. Sasha Gulati is a neurosurgeon um, at St. Olaf Hospital in Trondheim, Norway. And Norman, um, before we, we close off the show, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID on that other show we do, CoronaCast. Oh, I've heard about it, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes, we're still doing CoronaCast. You can find it on the ABC Listen app, uh, all of those sorts of promotional things. The virus never really went away, but it's definitely stepped up its game in the last few weeks. And we're getting a lot of people asking about fourth doses and further boosters. So we've actually got some more evidence recently about how useful fourth doses are. Yes. And so 5 million Australians haven't had their third dose and third doses do bring your antibody levels right back up to quite high levels. And you want them because this, these new variants that are coming along are more immune evasive. And you want you know, if you, particularly if your second dose was two years ago, sorry, two years ago, a year ago, you, you've got declining protection against severe disease. So you really want that third dose. But if you had your third dose, the question is, what is the value of a fourth dose? And a study from Israel in the New England Journal of Medicine suggests, it's quite interesting, and it suggests that maybe a fourth dose would be quite good at just this point when you've got a rise in new infections. Because what they looked at was the protection against infection itself. And what they showed was, so not severe protection against severe disease, which they assumed was quite high, but what they showed was that in the first 15 weeks or so, the protection against infection was quite reasonable. And then, sorry, well, in the first few weeks, and then it declined by 15 weeks. So it could be a tool for protecting against um, infection um, in, the, in the first 
period of a wave, as well as boosting people's immunity. Now, in Australia, it's over 30 people that are eligible for it. I think the Israelis have shown that the, max, the benefit really is in people over 50. But it could actually be a tool when we don't have very many other controls to, uh, to slow down the infection. But you've got to get those masks on. Yeah, and you can't get your fourth dose unless you've had your third, uh, as it stands to reason. Yep. But you can hear much more about that on Coronacast on the ABC Listen app, and that's all we've got time for on the Health Report today as well. So it's bye from me, Norman Swan. And bye from me, Tegan Taylor. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.